This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. So glad you're here. All right, let's go. If you're in here, open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, Isaiah is one of the prophets, probably just to the right of the middle of your Bible. And you have a few minutes to find it because I won't be there as I want to ask a few questions. So what we're going to do is we're going to step out of John's gospel for two weeks to take up a question as we head toward Easter. So Easter is three weeks from today, and here is the question. And I'll I'll even kind of italicize the the. Here is the question that will not only set us up for this Easter, but if we ask other people, it will catch their attention as well. Here's the question. What makes God unique? From all the other beings, real or imagined, what makes our God different? Don't know what your past experience is like with different faiths or religions. When I was in college, I studied at a school that embraced a universalized view of theology and worship. And so it was kind of explained to me that there are all these alleged supreme beings and maybe each has its own flavor or people worship that God or approach him or it a a little bit differently. But really it was kind of taught to me that all gods are essentially basically the same. There's a story. It's a made up story. Maybe you've heard it. There's blindfolded men and they're all around an elephant and they're feeling different parts of that elephant and describing what they're feeling, their different part, only to have the the blindfolds taken off and reveal it's all the same animal that they've been feeling. And and people say, well, different religions are like that. You're just feeling the the same or a different part of the same animal. So many people would hear, you know, what, what makes God unique? And they would say nothing. He's not unique. There's lots of different gods, and they're all kind of the same. Leading up to Easter, I want to give us a different answer. You can ask people, what do you think might make God unique? It's a good question and a good conversation starter. But here's my answer. It's the opposite of nothing. Everything. Everything. He is unique in everything. Every single way. Our God is other. You cannot find anything that is comparable to him and his glory and his majesty. And so to talk about our God is to talk about a being, one so different that nothing is like him. Psalm 86 says, there is none like you among the gods. You alone are God. And there's a way that that theologians talk about God while sort of trying to capture his uniqueness. They use a word, they say he's absolute. It's the same, same thing as saying he's perfect. 
But, but when I say perfect, don't think of the way we use perfection, you know, kind of something that, that checks all of the boxes or, or meets our needs. Like you, you might say, well, you got a perfect score on a test. Now, that doesn't mean you know everything there is to know about calculus. It just means of the questions asked, you knew all the answers to those questions, but your knowledge isn't perfect of that subject. Uh, we might hear, we might say, oh, she met a guy and he's perfect for her. We don't mean that that man doesn't have flaws. We just mean they're a good match together. They're sort of a better match than other people who were to be matched together would be. God's perfection is not like that. God's perfection is infinitely beyond that. Not only does his absolutism mean that he doesn't have any flaws, it means that he can't possibly possess any. And everything that he does possess, he possesses to the highest degree of perfection. His knowledge is unlimited. His goodness is immeasurable. He needs nothing, and everything that exists, exists because he has given it. And so the only way that you can describe God is to say that he is, and this is a word that we throw around a lot, but but we should know, because words have meaning, God is Holy, and, and people often will simply describe holiness as saying, well, he's set apart. And that's true. God is set apart. But let me add a little bit to that definition of holiness. God's holy, set apart, fine. He is other, but he is set apart and he is other to the ultimate end. So when you say God's holy, say that he's set apart, but say that he's set apart to the ultimate end. And he is perfectly holy. He's perfectly other. He is set apart alone in his glory and his majesty. But he's often not seen that way, is he? He's just not. Theologian David Wells says that God often feels weightless in our time. Do you, get, do you kind of get, is that a picture that you can, that you can get? You, you do you kind of get that sense that God is weightless in our time? There's nothing more significant, nothing more consequential in all of existence than him. He is majestic and still intimately personal, which means he can be known And so I I have to ask along with Psalm 113, who is like our God? It's a rhetorical question. Who is like our God? And the answer, the rhetorical answer is no one. Nobody's like our God. You're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to say Psalm 113, who's like our God? You're not supposed to say, well, it's no one. You're supposed to say, and you're supposed to hear in that what the psalm goes on to say, who is is like our God, who is seated on high, who looks down far from the heavens and toward the earth. You're not supposed to answer that. You're supposed to just sit there quietly and think. Maybe just shudder even a little bit. 
And then ponder how God has made himself known and how sweet it is that he reveals himself to you and to me. So leading up to Easter, how can we consider and comprehend his weight? If it's often that he seems weightless, how can we marvel at the weightiness of God? To do that, I I just want to take this week and next week, and I want us to draw us to God's transcendence and his imminence. Transcendence and imminence. The basic distinction between the two is that transcendence means that God is above all and over all, and imminence means that God's near to us. So if you want really simply to kind of understand what transcendence and imminence are, just do it like this. Transcendence means that God's up there. Imminence means that God's down here. And if we do that, transcendence and imminence, just for two weeks, here's my hope. I hope that as we look at God this way, we would know more of him. That's my hope. I don't, I don't have some long, drawn-out, complicated theological statement of hope. I hope that we will know more of him. You'll never find a greater treasure in all the universe. You could discover life on another planet. You could cure some devastating disease. You could stumble upon the formula for free, unlimited energy in the world, and you will still have not found something better than knowing God. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. It sounds simple, but I I can't do better than that in these two weeks. If if that's that's what I want, is that we would just know more of God. And there's there's a verse in Isaiah that captures transcendence and imminence so well. So in your Bibles, we're gonna be in two places. This week and next week, both start in Isaiah 57 at verse 15. And then both weeks go to Isaiah 40 into Isaiah 41. Transcendence and imminence are, in the person of God, are just beautifully married in Isaiah 57, 15. And then today, we'll see the majesty of God in Isaiah 40. And then the uh, presentness. I don't think that's a word. I don't think presentness is a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. We'll see the presentness of God in Isaiah 41. So it's kind of an expository series out of Isaiah 40 and 41 that starts in Isaiah 57, 15. So look at Isaiah 57, 15. Just follow along as I read this. See how perfectly married transcendence and imminence are right in this one verse, a beautiful verse. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that incredible? One verse, that's what we just said, just one verse that summarizes it so well. There's one who is holy. He dwells on high. And he is with the lowly, with, with the lowly in spirit. He revives, he's in the heart of the contrite. And here's how that works. Uh, The Bible will ascribe often, it does this, height to God to talk about his majesty. So it'll say he's the Lord most high, or he's high and lifted up. Or it'll, it'll say things like he inhabits the heavens of the heavens, which is kind of the realm above this one. Uh, in ancient Near Eastern world, the heavens were the sky, you know, where the birds fly. And then the heavens or the heavens is the realm beyond that. So that's what it says. He's the Lord most high. And then Isaiah is telling us how through his son, who came down from on high, and now through his spirit, God indwells. It doesn't just come around people, inhabits people. If, because he doesn't do this for everybody, people are contrite and lowly in their own spirits. The Holy Spirit inhabits those who are contrite and lowly in their own spirit. That's who he revives. And he is that way because on our own we're proud and self-reliant. But when we hear the gospel call, that is God revealing himself to us, our eyes are opened. The true nature of our spiritual impoverishment, our spiritually impoverished condition is known to us. And he gives us the grace to trust him and confess sin and turn from it. And then he gives new life. He revives the heart of the one who says, I am a sinner, yet you died for me and I take your death and become like you in it and I want to take your life and become like you in that. To live in Christ, you have to first see that you're dead without him. To live in Christ, you have to see that you're first dead without him. And it's the most high God who comes near in Jesus Christ to show us that. So that's Isaiah 57, 15. Now, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40. We'll spend the rest of our time here this morning. Isaiah 40. We're going to start reading in verse 12. As we read this, just remember, God is perfectly and fully all that he is. Perfectly and fully all that he is. So God, just to be clear, God is not at some times acting transcendently and at other times acting imminently. He is always perfectly transcendent. He is always perfectly imminent. And so we're going to turn our focus kind of mostly for the rest of this morning on God's transcendence. And then next week, come back. I want you to be here again. We'll talk about God's imminence. So Isaiah 40 is is such a good place for us to start to do this. It, It answers the question... What makes God unique by saying, this is Isaiah's 40's answer to that question. What makes God unique? It says, 
Look at God. There's nothing that compares to him. He's over everything. What makes him unique? He's over everything. But when you read Isaiah, it becomes plain that when it says, look at God, it's not saying, not saying, you got to get this, not saying you humans use your human eyes connected to your human brains and your human world and then look at God that way. If you do that, you're not going to fully comprehend God because you're limited. Your eyes are limited. Your brain's limited. Your world's limited. This is saying, Isaiah 40 teaches us to look at God like God looks at God. We're going to see God from God's perspective in this. Not our perspective, from God's perspective. This, so this is, not, this is not a man looking up and trying to describe God. This is God looking down and telling us who he is and who we are. And he's going to tell us how small our world is compared to him. Telling us that that we can look around and think. We can think we're seeing something glorious in the world. But if we were to look up, if we were to look at him, we will see something infinitely greater than even the most beautiful, most precious things that this world has to offer. So this is God from God's perspective. This we get in Isaiah 40. And it happens by God telling us three things that he reigns over. Three things that he's through. To use our word for the morning, three things that he transcends. So first, remember, transcendence is very simply he's up there. So first, he's up there over creation. Second, he's up there over nations. And third, he's incomparably greater than the false gods of this world. So he's high above creation, he's Lord over the nations, and he's the only true God. Those are the three things that Isaiah is going to tell us this morning. So the structure here is repetitious. You get the first two ideas building to the third God's glory above all deities is the third. And then you return again to the first two. Uh, This is a a nerdy uh, Bible study word. It's called a chiasm. It goes A, B, C, B, A, or one, two, three, two, one. Kind of returns back to those ideas, and I'll show you how that works. Uh, Writers, especially Old Testament writers, love this this pattern. They do it for emphasis. They want to draw you. They want to push you toward that middle idea. It's the middle idea that's the most important. So let's start in verse 12. I'm going to read. This is God is up there over creation. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed down the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Okay, the rhetor- it's rhetorical. Nobody. The answer is nobody. So what the picture is here is take all the waters of the oceans. Take the great lakes. Take every mighty river that if it was allowed to overflow, the levee would flood the town and take every little babbling brook that people think is, is nice and peaceful to have run through their backyard. Take all the water in the world 
and you can pour it into God's cupped hand and it all fits in the middle. And then add the mountains and then add the hills and there is plenty of room in there and then he can take those and he can place them on a scale to make sure each is just right. To make sure each is in the right proportion to how he wants it. This is saying creation is this way because God has made it as exactly as he intended it to be. And he created all of it himself and he didn't need to work with somebody else. He didn't need to get help. He didn't need to get counsel. He didn't need to have input from the team. He just did it. He thought it and then by the power of his word, everything that is, is. Now, Isaiah is writing this for a people in exile. It's the people of Israel. They're in exile in Babylon. They've been overtaken and they're waiting. They're far from home to see if God can be of any help to them. So when Isaiah says this, he's saying this is going to happen in the future, but that it's written for them in the future to know that when they're in exile, so this is a future prophecy for them, when they're in exile, they wonder Is God still trustworthy? Can he help with the Babylonians? And he starts here because if they're in Babylon, eventually they're going to be in Babylon, and what they're going to learn about the Babylonians is they have, too, a creator God. Their creator God was called Marduk. But Marduk wasn't their only God. In fact, Babylon had nine main deities that they worshiped. Sometimes their deities worked together. Sometimes they opposed one another and fought together. And other times, small groups of them conspired against another small group of them. That's the point here. When you're in Babylon, when you wonder if your God is the true God, Yahweh, the one who is who he is, remember that he doesn't need help to create. He's not like Marduk. He is more than enough by himself to bring forth the world from nothing. So can he be trusted? Yes. Now, I told you he returns to these themes toward the end of the passage. So jump down to verse 25 and see more of this. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He comes back around for another appeal, and this is what he's talking about is stars. The Babylonians excelled at astronomy. Many believe that the wise men who come to visit Jesus shortly after his birth were Babylonians who'd been studying patterns of the stars and then noticed something special about the time following Jesus' birth. So they were, in a sense, expert astronomers. So Isaiah says to God's people, you're in the midst of people who've studied the stars, but your God is the one who put them there. Now, we can't see this because we live near a big city. 
Have you ever been to the country? And I don't mean like, you know, Mundelein. I mean the country out there. And have you ever looked up at night? Uh, I, I spent two summers years ago in really small towns. One in the northern part, which is mountainous of Arizona. The other in Montana. When you are far away from light, especially when you're at elevation, you will see so many stars that it sort of frightens you. And you will feel like they're just right there. Isaiah's point is God put them there. He says he knows exactly how many there should be, and every single day he makes sure the right number is there again. And if he has the power like that to do that, surely he is powerful enough to make sure that what happens in this world and in your life happens according to his will. So he's up there over creation. Second thing Isaiah writes is he's up there over the nations. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So when the Bible says nations, it's referring to the the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. And the reason to take up God's transcendence over the nations is because two nations in the history of God's people invaded the land that they inhabit. And at the heart of every issue for God's people, at the heart of Every single issue for God's people at this point in history is what will become of us. Invasion, destruction, and exile. What's going to happen to us? Will we just kind of get mixed in with another nation and no longer be a special people of God? Or does God have something for us? Other nations seem so much more powerful than them. And so God comes to say, nations are like a drop in a bucket for me. I have no more worry about nations than if you were to tip your glass just a little bit funny and the smallest bit of water were to drip out the side. I don't care. I don't worry about it. If you were to take a bucket and fill it with water and while you are carrying it, just a little bit sloshed over the side, would you go back and refill the whole bucket? Of course not. It's just a tiny, tiny bit in the bucket. He uses Lebanon as an example. Uh, Lebanon is known for, it was known for its vast force of cedar trees. And so he says you could cut down all the trees in Lebanon and you could make a big, huge fire. And then you could take all the animals in Lebanon and you could throw them on the top of the fire as a sacrifice. And it still wouldn't come close to showing God the glory that he's due. In other words, you could light a nation on fire and it wouldn't glorify God to any significant degree. So Isaiah comes back to this theme again, verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth 
and its inhabitants, nations, are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So we tend to worry about our lives in two ways. Uh, The first is is what's happening immediately to me. So what's happening in, in, in my small world? Can God be trusted here? Can I grow close to him and, and will he give me refuge? Now God's answered that already. If, if he can be sure that the stars come out at night, he can be sure, you can be sure his will will be done for you. But the second way that we tend to worry is what's happening sort of in the larger world around us. So when I get outside of my own head, what's it like out there? And a lot of times that takes the form of us being worried about the place that we live. We worry about who's been elected to make the decisions. What is the world going to be like for our children and their children, the generations to come? And so here God says, I've created everything I can take care of you. And now he says, I reign over all the nations. I reign over all the princes and the rulers. I reign over all of that too. So you can trust me with the wider world. So the rhetorical question is, if I founded the earth and I'm over that, doesn't it make sense that I'm, that I'm also over everything on the earth? He brings princes to nothing. The, the bravado of, of earthly rulers who are so blusterous with their political speeches and their plans, they're like a, a man or woman to him who's lost their voice. And it's just straining to get out even a little squeak compared to the power of his will. So no matter whether it's our own small lives or the wider world, God is up there and he's over it. And now the last one. He's over other gods. This one gets only one block of verses. Uh, But that's not because it's the least important. It's actually highlighted. I told you it's highlighted by the structure and the way that Isaiah writes this. He's drawing our attention to this one. This is the most important thing Isaiah will say. In this section of, of Isaiah 40, this is the most important thing that's being said. So let's pay attention here. 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and and casts for for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will, will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So here's what Isaiah knows. More importantly, here's what God knows. That in our stress, when we're unsure, when things seem out of control, our natural desire is to create a God in our own image. We want something that we can control and we can go to and we can feel like we have a place to go to get what we want. 
We see this all the time. Every time I hear somebody describing their God and it's not the God of the Bible, guess what? It sounds an awful lot like this. Their God likes everything that they like. And he dislikes everything that they dislike. And their God never corrects them because their God will never tell them that they're wrong. And their God will never rebuke them because they never err. Their God will never come to them and demand their idols. And he will never wrestle away from them their own desire to be God. Whenever I hear somebody else describe their God and it's not the God of the Bible, it's always exactly who they want their God to be. Only the God of the Bible, the true God, will come and say, you are not God, I am. And he will, if necessary, wrestle the idols away from us. And he will bring us low so that he might be exalted. And when we are wrong, which is often the case, he will rebuke us. Only he, for our good, will show us that he is over us. He transcends all. You and I make terrible gods. But remember, he's a perfect one. So even more important than the created world, even more important than our present nations, God has to transcend false gods and the idols of this world because that's where we're prone to go. Our hearts are idol factories. We know, we know that nations come and go. We've seen the brokenness even in our created world. We know that our world will fail us, that it's not always safe here. But the lie, the true lie that we're prone to believe over and over again isn't in the created world, it isn't in the nations. It's the promise that there can be an easier God, that we can find an easier God. That's the original lie. God's something else, God's something different. There's an easier way with God. That's the original lie in the Garden of Eden. And it's at the bottom of every other lie. It's the root of all lies. But an idol can never deliver. Now, some of the prophets go hard after other gods. Frankly, they use language that we probably wouldn't approve of our children using to describe other gods. But actually, let's, let's read carefully. Isaiah doesn't take that route here. He doesn't even really argue against other gods. He just plainly tells you who they are and what they are. He sort of just points to their futility and, and actually kind of their silliness. So he says, who, who are you going to compare God to? Something that you can go and, and have somebody make for you. You know, they make you a little metal thing and then they overlay it with gold. And, and look at this, I love it. And cast for it a silver chain. What, what are you going to do? You're going to find a God who somebody can make and then you can and hang it on your neck and kind of carry it around and say, here's my God, it's right here. What, what, what are you going to do? Or, or what are you going to get? make a God out of wood? There's no wood that's not eventually going to rot. You, you know, wood's not going to make a good God. What are you going to do? Seek out a really skillful craftsman, somebody who's really good at making stuff? Are they going to make a better God than, than somebody who's a little bit less skilled? He just points out the, the futility, the silliness of trying to find a God in this world. Who can compare? Who will you liken him to? Who, who, who will you compare him with? Uh, nobody. Nobody's like him. Of course it's nothing. You and I will spend our lives faced with, with this decision. 
Will we trust God and worship the true God? Or will we choose something less? It's that simple. I know it doesn't feel that simple. Because you and I, we're in the same, we're in this fight every day. So what do you do? Every morning, you're going to get up when God gives you life and breath and you're going to be asked this question. Will you trust God? Will you worship the true God? Or are we going to choose something less today? So what do we do? What do we do every day? Isaiah said God God transcends everything. And his answer is very simply, very simply, what do we do because of that? We worship. We worship him. We know that he is creator and he's over all things. And so we worship him and say, God, I am not the creator and you are. What an incredible, powerful God you are. And we know he's over nations. He's not the God of of one people group or, or, or one place. He's the God of the whole world. So we worship him and we say, God, you are the God of this whole world. Things rise and things fall. The tides move in and out. Princes come and princes go. All according to your plan and your purpose and your will. Everything that's set up is there because you've set it up. Everything that's torn down is there because you're tearing it down. We say there's nobody like him. And then we feel ourselves trying to craft him in our image. We worship and we say, no, 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 no. God, take this idol away from me. May I not make an idol of anything in this world. I worship you and you alone. I will not try to find another God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, the practice here is worship. When we are uncertain, worship. When we are afraid, worship. When we want to take control, worship. His transcendence alone commands that. But his steadfast love given through Jesus Christ shows us that that's the only true way to live. The transcendent God loves people. He's patient and long-suffering with people. And he gave himself for the sins of people in Jesus Christ. Trust in that and be forgiven. Worship starts there. You can't say, I worship God but I haven't taken Jesus Christ as Savior and I'm not following him as Lord. You can't say I worship God and not follow after his son Jesus. You can't say I worship God and I haven't confessed my sins, but I don't confess my sins. I'm gonna hold on to things of my own. You can't say worship has to start there. But that's not where worship ends. That's where the Christian life begins but our worship of God lasts for the rest of our lives in this world and and forever into the next. So the practice here, the play here, is worship. Our lives as worship, our bodies as worship, our spirits as worship, our time as worship, everything we are 
as worship. For he is the God who is up there over all. And now, through the cross of Christ, he can be in and through us. That's what we do next week in imminence. He can be known. Who is like this God? No one. Let us pray. Nobody is like you. We worship you. We adore you. We cast down our idols and place you alone on the thrones of our own hearts knowing that you are on the throne of all that is seen and all that is unseen. May our lives be praise to you, O God, most high. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.